Welcome to the CSB SCB podcast, part of the Canadian Society for Biomechanics. We are your hosts and student representatives, Jackie Zare and Francie Onet. CSB SCB podcast. Joining us today is Dr. Walter Herzog from the University of Calgary. Dr. Herzog graduated with a diploma in physical education from the Federal Technical Institute in Zurich and then went on to complete his PhD degree in biomechanics at the University of Iowa. In 1985, he came to the University of Calgary as a postdoc and never left. He established his own research group and eventually became the director of the Human Performance Laboratory in the Faculty of Kinesiology, a position he still holds today. Dr. Herzog was awarded the CSB Career Award in 2006, and he is a fellow as well as a past president of the society. He's a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair for Cellular and Molecular Biomechanics and a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. Thank you for being here with us today, Walter. Thanks for having me. So Dr. Herzog, you've worked at the University of Calgary since you were a postdoctoral fellow, and in fact, this year is the 30th anniversary of you becoming an associate professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology. And throughout your tenure at Calgary, you've run a very successful research program, and you're the director of the world-famous Human Performance Laboratory. So growing up, or even as an undergraduate student, did you always see yourself becoming a researcher someday? And can you tell us a little bit about how you gravitated towards research in science? Wow, um, I actually never saw myself becoming a researcher. So during my entire schooling and undergraduate studies, I never thought that I would end up in research. So as Francisca was mentioning in, in the introduction, I was in physical education at the Federal Technical Institute in Zurich. And I wanted to become a physical education teacher and coach in track and field. And then in Zurich, I got intrigued by biomechanics classes that were held there as part of the curriculum. And I became really interested. And I thought it would be really neat to know more about biomechanics when becoming a track and field coach. I thought it would be really great to know a bit more than just a regular coach. And so I thought I'm going to study this thing and then get a PhD in it and then go back to Switzerland and become a very sophisticated and well-educated coach. I then went to the University of Iowa and studied with Jim Hay. And I was initially in a master's program and then switched into a PhD program. So I was there for six years. And probably about three years into that program, I started realizing that I really became intrigued by the scientific questions rather than the athlete. So for example, in Jim Hayes lab, we worked with uh, track and field United States and we were preparing the long jumpers and triple jumpers for the 1984 Olympic games in Los Angeles. And at one point, uh, Jim Hay and I had this discussion about how can we make that Carl Lewis, the best long jumper and the guy who then eventually won four gold medals in long jumping at the Olympic Games, how can we make him jump world record? Because we felt he had all the speed and the strengths and everything. He had all the right properties. He should be jumping world record, but he wasn't. And I remember I was thinking at the time, I'm actually not really interested in Carl Lewis jumping world record. I'm more interested in the problem if somebody has the muscles and the speed and the build that the Carl Lewis has, how can we maximize jumping performance? And I started realizing that more and more athletes were not so important to me anymore, but the underlying mechanisms of how something might be optimized or achieved, you know, in the best possible way became very intriguing to me. And I started realizing I'm not going to be a physical education teacher. I'm not going to be a coach. I would like to be a scientist. That's really how it happened for me. Do you remember what you thought or how you felt when you came to the lab on your first official day of work? I remember that I arrived in Calgary on the 3rd of August 1985 and it was Heritage Day and I couldn't go to the lab because the uh, university was closed. I didn't know that, the, that it would be Heritage Day. I had no Canadian money 
And so I didn't really know where I could buy something and where I would stay, but I had a tent with me. And so I just went camping at some place outside of Calgary, wild, not really an fishing camping spot. And then I think the next day I went into the lab, but no, I don't remember the details of it. Sorry. That's okay. Do you remember what the first piece of equipment that you bought for your new lab was? You know, in those days, people didn't get any startup money. And so the only pieces of equipment that we had in the lab was force platforms and these low-cam, high-speed cameras, you know, the high-speed video equivalent of today. But I wasn't really interested in working with those because I never was a running analysis person. And the only other piece of equipment I had was a Cybex machine. So I figured out what can I do with a Cybex machine. And then it took years, I think, before I bought my first piece of equipment. And I can't remember what it was. Well, that's okay. So was the first research project that you completed in your lab with the Cybex machine? I have to maybe go a little bit back. The reason why I ended up in Calgary, a lot of people think it was because of biomechanics and because of Ben O'Neill, because that's who I was associated with. But it goes really further back because in my doctoral thesis, I tried to solve the distribution problem in biomechanics. And so it was a purely theoretical piece of work. No experiments, no nothing. So I just tried to figure out how might you predict individual muscle forces in the most feasible way in these redundant systems of the human body. When I did that, you know, I came up with a certain solution that was never really validated against any real data. And I thought for my postdoc, I want to go to a place where you can make direct muscle force measurements and EMG measurements and electroneurographical measurements and everything you want in an animal model and then apply my human individual muscle force prediction model in this animal situation and see how it worked. And I had almost committed to go to University of California in Los Angeles with Bob Greger and Judy Smith and uh, Reggie Edgerton and those people because they instrument the cat hind limbs with force transducers and so on and so on. But Dr. Nick wanted me to come to Calgary and he realized that there was a person in clinical neuroscience called Andy Hoffer who did exactly that type of work as well. And so then he convinced me to come to Calgary and I came to Calgary really primarily because of Dr. Hoffer and instrumentation of cat hind limbs with buckle force transducers and EMGs and so on. And so the first project I did then in Calgary really was to learn how to do this animal work and how to measure direct muscle forces in an animal model. The end of the story, of course, is that when I compared my optimization algorithm, which is still used today in OpenSIM, for example, it didn't work at all. It gave terrible predictions. <laughs> but I'm still happy that after 35 years, it's still used in a public library, but it doesn't work if you want to make accurate individual muscle force predictions. So I essentially received my PhD for a piece of theoretical work that at the end of the day, when validated, really was nowhere near to what I hoped it would be. That might be encouraging for some of us. <laughs> we all start with failure and very low. <laughs> so in the biomechanics world, your name is really connected to muscle research and muscle mechanics. And so naturally, that's something we want to talk about today. And we have an anecdote about muscles. So I don't know if you went there, but a couple of years ago, we had the Small Body World exhibit in Calgary. And one of the plays said that muscles were named after the term musculus, which in Latin would have meant little mouse because the people who named the muscles at the time thought that they looked like little mice uh, running around below a carpet. I did go to the Body World exhibition and I saw it on a couple of occasions in different cities as well. Yeah, I was very impressed. Beautiful exhibition. Speaking about muscle, so how did you specialize in this field in the end? You said that you were interested in figuring out how to maximize someone's performance and their potential in sports, but what got you excited about muscle? 
Yeah, I think initially it was really from my athletic background, wanting to be a coach and really wanting to understand muscle performance and how you could optimize that. And then, as I mentioned, uh, in my PhD, I did this muscle force prediction without really having done any experiments ever on muscles. And when I wrote my PhD thesis and then during my postdoc, when my predictions from my theoretical algorithm really were not very good, I started realizing that probably part of the reason was that I didn't really understand muscles very well. So then I thought maybe I should start measuring the properties of human muscles and animal muscles and so on to get a better idea how muscles work. And so really, it was not so much that I was very excited about muscles from the very beginning, but it posed a challenge. You know, I had started working on it and started realizing that I really didn't understand it and I wanted to understand it. And then I also read two, three classic articles that really were intriguing to me. And the one that always sticks out to me is uh, Hill in 1953, and then followed up by uh, some people like David Morgan and Uwe Praske and Fred Julian talking about instability of muscles on the descending limb of the force length relationship and how sarcomeres would tear themselves apart on the descending limb and would get injured. And to me, that was very intriguing because without having done any experiments myself, when I read this, it just didn't ring true. I found it very awkward that a muscle would be unstable and kind of tear itself apart over 60% of its working range. And, and I thought that was a really intriguing problem. The fact that people thought it worked that way and you really should avoid the descending limb of the force length relationship, otherwise you would be in big trouble. And somehow I thought, why would evolution over the last, I don't know, millions and millions of years have evolved this molecular motor that is so vulnerable over a very large part of its, um, of its working range? And that never really made sense to me, even at a time when I had myself not done any, any research and any experiments in it at all. And so there were a, a couple of problems there that I thought were really, really intriguing. And I think that attracted me then and made me really want to study this system a bit better because I felt that it's probably not as well understood as it should be. So in order to perform very fine and gross movements, we rely on our skeletal muscles to contract when and how we need them to. And most people are probably familiar with the term muscle contraction and at least some theoretical basis for molecular contractile mechanics. And over the years, there's been this evolution of theoretical perspectives for how muscles contract to generate force. Can you give us an overview of this theoretical evolution from contracting myosin filaments to Sir Andrew Huxley's crossbridge theory? Muscles have been studied for a very long time. You can go back to Aristotle and you find that he looked at the muscular build of athletes and then tried to predict how well or how badly they would do in certain events. And the idea about looking at muscles and judging people by their muscles and then predict athletic performance has been around for a very, very long time. And I, I was intrigued by the idea that uh, people thought that muscles would be filled with some kind of a, a fluid or some kind of a spirit and become bigger and then deform. And that's how muscle contraction would occur. And then, of course, that was kind of uh, dispelled in the late 1700s, early 18th century, when people started realizing that no, likely there is no additional substance going into muscles because volume in a muscle contraction is approximately preserved. And then I think it became really interesting in the 20th century when we had several paradigm shifts because in the 1920s, A.V. Hill had this very interesting theory where he thought when a muscle is activated, there would be a certain amount of elastic energy, potential energy stored in some elastic body that would be available for contraction and that would be constant and then the muscle would contract and depending on the resistance would do that slower or faster. And then of course, Wallace Fenn in, in Hill's laboratory realized that that was not the case, that 
you didn't have a certain amount of energy available in muscle contraction, but the array of the, the amount of energy liberation dependent actually on how the muscle was contracting. And for example, that in concentric contractions, you would have much more energy liberation than you would have in an isometric contraction, for example, or in an eccentric contraction. And then the whole idea came about, well, how is this energy production produced? And then for a while, people thought contraction was initiated by lactic acid. And then people realized in the 1930s and around 1935, no, that was not the case. And then they started realizing the role of ATP as a potential energy source. Then the idea was that ATP would somehow cause helix to coil transformation where myosin filaments that were initially long would go from a helical structure into a coil structure at certain segments and then would shorten. And so really there was the idea about myosin or thick filament shortening in the middle of the sarcomere and that would produce force. Then of course in 1953 the first hint by Hugh Huxley and then in 1954 Hugh Huxley and Andrew Huxley in their nature papers simultaneously describing that no the A-bands do not seem to be shortening and they proposed then in 1954 that likely actin and myosin filaments would be moving relative to one another and then the famous paper by Andrew Huxley in 1957 where he predicted fairly accurately how this relative movement was achieved, you know, by supposing there were cross bridges from the myosin filaments reaching out to the actin filaments to specific attachment sites. And then with the help of a phosphate rich energy compound, you know, ATP as it turns out, that then will provide the energy for pulling the actin filaments past the, the myosin filaments. And then you went from there with refinements, but the 1957 paper, I think, really captured most of how we think today about muscle contraction. From my understanding, you knew the Nobel laureate, Sir Andrew Huxley, quite well. Do you have any fond memories of him? And was there something in particular that you personally found to be inspirational about him? My most precious time with him was when, in 1999, I invited him to be the Wartenweiler Memorial Lecturer at the ISB meeting. But before the ISB conference, I organized a three or four day muscle meeting in the mountains in Canmore and invited him to be a, a keynote lecturer there. And in those four or five days of the conference, uh, he lived with me at my place in Canmore. And then during the ISB, we both went to Calgary. But then after the ISB conference, he stayed another week before he traveled on to Seattle. And so essentially there was a time where for, for a two and a half or three weeks, we kind of lived together and th there we chatted a lot and I got to know him really well and we talked a lot about muscles. But I think if you ask me, you know, what is kind of a characteristics or what stuck out for me, I think it was really what kind of a, a gentleman he was. So for example, every day he would always wear a suit and tie and dress up shoes. So even when he went uh, hiking in the forests behind my house every day, he would always go in suit and tie. And I remember at the Kaymore conference, we made this little hike. It's not long, but it's probably about an hour and a half. He was there in his dress-up shoes and just always very proper and very approachable. So, for example, we talked about a lot of interesting things during those days up in Kaymore together. So... For example, I learned that he knew the children of Mallory really well. So Mallory is the person that some people think was the first one to go up Mount Everest and then died on the way down in 1924. And some people think he reached the peak and actually was you know, there before Hillary and Tensing. And some people think, no, he died before he reached the, the summit. So there's this puzzle about whether or not Mallory made it up there or not. And Mallory's children were born right around when uh, Andrew Huxley was born. And so he knew the children of Mallory. And so we talked about that. We talked a lot about his uh, grandfather as well, uh, Thomas Huxley, who was a pioneer in the theory of evolution. And I happened to have, this was purely by accident, I happened to have this big 
biography of Thomas Huxley there, and he looked at it and was all excited that I would read about his grandfather. And then the other thing that was very interesting, his wife, Regenda, had a family connection to the Darwins, you know, the Darwins of the theory of evolution. And I forgot now exactly how the connection worked, but it's very interesting to explore those family connections. And and also on uh, Regenda's side, there were some alpinists that had come to Canada and there were two or three mountain peaks here in the Rocky Mountains that were named after ancestors of Regenda. And we tried to figure out where they were and figure out why they were named that way and who ascended it and when they ascended it. So we went to the White Museum in Banff to figure that all out. So that was a very beautiful time. And Andrew Huxley, just incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly humble, and very, very approachable. That was, you know, that was, I, I think if somebody asked me, what, what's the scientific highlight of your life? I would say it's these two weeks with Andrew Huxley and his wife. That was really beautiful. And I asked myself how I had the guts to just kind of invite him and not only invite him, but then invite him to stay with us at my place rather than a hotel. And, you know, I just wanted to have access to him. I was very selfish. So, <laughs> so when we think about his crossbridge theory, one of the great things about it is that it readily explains two really important and relatively easily observable observations that have been made about muscle. Those two phenomena are the force length relationship and the force velocity relationship in muscle. Can you briefly describe what they are? The force length relationship in one sentence describes really the capacity of a muscle to produce force as a function of its length. And I always like to be a little bit more clear about it. I always say it's the active maximal isometric force that a muscle can exert as a function of its length. And so it has this uh, inverted U-shaped appearance where the muscle is strong in some middle section and then becomes weaker at shorter lengths and weaker at longer lengths. And force-velocity relation is very similar, but it's the, the capacity of a muscle to produce force as a function of its rate of change in length, you know, as a, a function of its velocity of shortening or as a function of its velocity of stretch. And that goes back to the Hill times in the 1935 and 1938, where I guess other people had shown it before, but A.V. Hill showed very, very nicely that for shortening contractions that the external force that a muscle can produce becomes smaller and smaller the faster the shortening velocity is. And then you reach what is usually referred to as an ultimate velocity or a maximum unloaded velocity where the muscle is shortening so fast that the external force becomes zero. So you cannot really exert force anymore. Now, the sliding filament and crossbridge theory, it, they're widely accepted as the explanation for how muscle contraction works. It's what we find described in textbooks and what's taught to students in kinesiology and biomechanics. But as you know, it is not as easily accepted by absolutely everyone. And there are critics. And of course, the discussion about that could probably be a lecture on its own. But could you maybe tell us about why someone might not be satisfied with this theory? Well, the, when you check the theory very, very carefully, it, it explains a lot, but it also does not explain certain things that are observed on an everyday basis. And if we just go back to the force lengths and the force velocity relationships, the maximum force, which we call the plateau region of the force length relationship, is very nicely explained by the idea that you have optimal overlap between the actinomycin filaments and therefore a maximum number of cross bridges can interact between actinomycin and the more cross bridges that are attached, the bigger the force. If I then make the muscle or the sarcomere longer, then I have less and less overlap and therefore less and less possibility for cross bridges from myosin to interact with actin. And that's called the descending limb when the muscle becomes longer you have less force. So those two things, the plateau and the descending limb, are really well explained. 
but there is really not good explanation for why we lose force on the ascending limb. People argue, well, the actin filaments start overlapping and they, other people argue that there is not a full release of calcium at very short muscle length, so the activation has been changing. Other people are arguing that the mycin filament and other structures get internally deformed and offer resistance. And there's a variety of explanations, but not really a cross-bridge explanation. And then, of course, the force-velocity relationship is a very funny thing because we can predict the force-velocity relationship really well because Huxley chose the way he constructed the rate constants of cross-bridge attachment and detachment in this very funny asymmetric way so that it would fit the force-velocity relationship. And in fact, in his 1957 paper, where he derives the force-velocity relationship, he's very clear in saying that he chose the rate constants in such a way that they would fit the best available mechanical data that he knew of, and that was the force-velocity relationship of the frog sartorius in 1938 by Hill. So, in other words, he really curve-fitted his attachment and detachment constants to fit the theory. So the force-velocity theory, a lot of people think, is a property of the cross-bridge theory, but it's really not. It's a, you use the mathematics of the cross-bridge theory that Andrew Huxley had developed, and then you fit the rate constants of attachment and detachment in such a way that they give you the appropriate shape that you want. And then, of course, there is a, you know, a variety of other things that are not explained, and Huxley referred to them on many, many occasions. So, for example, in the eccentric contraction, much of his model predictions fall apart. In 1957, the force that he gets in eccentric contraction is more than five times the isometric force, whereas we know you should be getting in an isolated fiber or muscle about one and a half or two times the isometric force maximally. So he way overestimated the eccentric force. He way overestimated the energy requirements. He way overestimated the heat produced by muscles. So all these mechanical things that he tried to predict with his model, the, when they fit well for the concentric contraction, they don't seem to work well for eccentric and vice versa. And then he left them for the concentric contraction. And so the eccentric contraction, therefore, has always been a bit of a mystery. So when we have a theory that does not explain all the observations we make, there are a few potential reasons for that. One could be that the theory is just wrong. Another one could be that the observations we made maybe are flawed because our test setup was not right. And then the third option might be, and you alluded to it already, is that maybe the theory is just not complete, which is our very elegant segue to Titan today, because that, of course, is the other term that's really linked to you or that often comes up when, when people talk about you and your research. And so the next question would just be, what is Titan? Well, Titan is a structural protein, the, the biggest protein that is known um, in the human and animal body. It's a structural protein that goes from the middle of a sarcomere to the Z-line, so it spans a half sarcomere on either side, and you have per half myosin, we think, six titan molecules, one for each of the actins that in a mammalian skeletal muscle surround the half myosin. And initially, when it was discovered by Maruyama and Wang in 1976 and 1979, respectively, the primary idea was that titan would be producing stability for the myosin filament, so that the myosin filament would be nicely staying in the center of the sarcomere. That's another problem with the cross-bridge theory. When you try to model it physically, it doesn't work because you have this instability of the myosin filament. It's pulled to one side or the other side just because of the stochastic nature of how cross-bridges work. So Titan then was thought to give stability to the myosin filament and also produce some of the passive force that we see in muscle. And when you go down on the sarcomere level or the myofibrillar level, where we work primarily, then Titan essentially produces all the passive force in an isolated sarcomere or in an isolated myofibril. 
This passive force production is the aspect that was new. Can you explain exactly? So how can that explain some of the properties of muscle contraction that we observe and that were not reconciled before with the original cross-bridge theory? Yeah, so one of the properties that we've been working on for about 25 years now are these history-dependent properties. And the one where Titan presumably plays a fairly big role is what we call residual force enhancement. So that's the idea that you get more isometric force at steady state when you stretch a muscle actively compared to when you activate it at the same length from a passive configuration. Andrew Huxley was very aware of that, and he mentioned that, for example, in his 1980 book, uh, Reflections on Muscles, he mentions the idea that you get this extra force, and he didn't really know where it came from. And in his genius at the time, he actually said something like that he felt that there was something to be discovered, that there was something missing yet that might be able to explain some of these unexplained phenomena on the, when we stretch muscle, when we undergo an eccentric contraction. And then I guess, you know, really why Titan is a lot associated with me is because, because I was very, very lucky. We discovered something purely accidentally, serendipitously, that I did an experiment with Tim Leonard on Catsaleus muscle. And we discovered that when we stretched the Catsaleus muscle, that at the end of the stretch, and when we had deactivated the muscle, very often there would be a substantial amount of passive force that was still there that shouldn't be there. So we got an extra passive force that we didn't expect. So if we pulled the muscle passively to a certain long length, or if we activated it at a long length, we would always get the same passive force. But if we stretched it actively to that length, then we would get this extra force that we then called in that article in 2002, it was published in the Journal of Experimental Biology, we called that passive force enhancement. And so all of a sudden, the idea came about that maybe there's a passive structural element and maybe that passive structural element somehow engages uh, in an active contraction when you stretch the muscle in such a way that it then produces an additional force on top of the force that's produced by the cross bridges and therefore would explain this residual force enhancement property. Then we did some additional experiments once we had that within the next three or four years. We then did experiments on single myofibrils and single sarcomeres, and we discovered that this passive force enhancement property was also there in single myofibrils and, and in single sarcomeres. And we knew that when we eliminated Titan, it was not there. And we knew that Titan was essentially the only element that could provide passive force on the myofibrillar level. And that's when we started saying, okay, it must be Titan. You know, it, it, there must be something happening with Titan. And then we started looking at calcium binding to Titan and found that, yes, calcium bound and changed the stiffness properties of Titan. And then we did experiments where we thought Titan might make itself shorter by binding to actin. And we found some indirect evidence that indeed this is happening. And I'm completely surprised because I've just read last week three or four articles where people refer to this idea as, oh, yeah, this is happening and we know it. But really the only experiments that hint indirectly at the idea that Titan indeed might bind to, to actin are these experiments by my former student, Mike Duval, that were published in, the 20, in 2017 in a couple of articles. But there's really no other evidence there. And, and, and I'm surprised that that people already talk about this, oh, yeah, this is an old hat. We know that that's happening. And so whereas, whereas I am really not quite sure yet if that's indeed what is happening, I think I'm, I'm just a bit more cautious. As you mentioned earlier, your PhD thesis, and there's been a vast body of work that's been dedicated to understanding the generation and prediction of muscle forces during the completion of tasks that quite vary in complexity. What are some common theoretical models that are used for understanding how muscle force is distributed? That kind of goes back to my thesis work to predict how much does each muscle contribute. And there people have used optimization. They have used simulation with muscle models. They have used uh, simulations on electromyographical measurements as input of activation into the model. 
trying to predict individual muscle forces. And then we, many years ago, uh, over, 20, yeah, over 20 years ago, used already what, what now is usually referred to as, you know, uh, data mining and, and artificial intelligence, that type of thing. So we, we used artificial network algorithms to predict individual muscle forces in dynamic situations from EMG. Again, that was very easy to do because I did that in the CAT hind limb, where we measured the EMG activity of many muscles and measured the muscle forces simultaneously. And then through a learning process of the artificial neural network, we could match the EMGs to the corresponding forces. And the predictions, uh, there are a couple of papers out there, the predictions were really, really, really good. But the problem is you need to measure the muscle forces first and train your algorithm, in our case, an artificial neural network, you need to train it. And so if you have to measure it anyway to train it, then you might as well measure it all the time and not predict it. So there are components of muscle modeling that are more interconnected with experimental work like you discussed, for example, predicting force from laboratory measurements of electromyography and others related to force sharing and distribution like we just talked about that are primarily driven by these theoretical explanations with some consideration for experimental components. So with your work generally having impressive theoretical and experimental components, where do you see these theoretical or mathematical models fitting into this inductive deductive cycle of scientific inquiry? Ooh, that's a very good question. And how does it all fit? This is really a very personal opinion, but I think if somebody really wants to solve the distribution problem very carefully and really figure out for a variety of different movement conditions how it all works, then you will need to have a proper validation. And I think proper validation, in my opinion at least, can only be done if you do direct muscle force measurements. The individual muscles measure the contribution of these. You know, I've tried that 25 or 30 years ago by measuring five or six hind limb muscles in a cat simultaneously. But after we stopped that, really very, very few people have taken that up. And I think if somebody's really serious, that really would need to be done, that you go to animal models and test it out in animal models. And now there is open sim models available of the hind limb of the cat, of the rat, I think, as well. And so, so these models are now available. And, and now you can start playing around with predicting muscle forces and in these animals, uh, also directly measuring the muscle forces and then see when a cat, for example, when it jumps or when it lands or when it runs or when it trots or when it walks or when it stands on its hind limb, what is the force sharing between these muscles and what might govern this force sharing in a true sense. So I think as long as people work with human evaluation and EMG evaluation, or even the evaluation there, you know, that people have done now by measuring uh, the contact pressures in prosthesis and see if that's predicted properly. That, of course, is really not a validation of the individual muscle forces. That's a validation of getting the pressure correct. But I would argue getting joint pressures correct is infinitely easier than getting the muscle, the individual muscle forces correct that contribute to it. So I think the distribution problem is a step away from calculating contact distributions and peak forces at joints. So I think in the future, you know, if you like it or not, if somebody really, really wanted to solve that, you probably have to go back to animal models. So now relating this primarily theoretical discussion back to why it matters and some bigger picture problems that we face in biomechanics related to health, injury sport performance and occupational performance. Can you explain why understanding muscle force generation and some of the theoretical attempts to predict it are such important factors in our field? It's very interesting because I've, I've never really been a very applied person. So I've always been intrigued by the, by the basic problems. And that's always a, a very hard question for me. But let, let me give you maybe a couple of examples. One of the things we have been interested in is in the muscles of children with cerebral palsy because they have this plasticity, they have these very high passive forces, and we were interested in why that is and potentially on how we could help that. When people have measured 
the passive properties in muscles of uh, children with cerebral palsy, they are much higher passive forces, and also on the fascicle level and also on the fiber level. And we did it on the myofibrillar level. And on the myofibrillar level, the muscle is actually much softer. And we were wondering, why is that? Is it a change in the isoform of Titan or something else? And it was not a change in the Titan isoform, but it ended up being loss of Titan in these children. It seems that children with cerebral palsy only have about half the amount of Titan that normal, typically developing children have. And so for me, that, that, that's a nice example where research might potentially provide some input into a clinical problem because then the idea becomes, were these titans lost initially and therefore the rest of the muscle put in all this collagen to reinforce the muscle and not make it so vulnerable? Or did the collagen come first and made the muscle really stiff? And then on the sarcomeric level, in order to keep some working range, some possible working range for these children, the muscle then adapted and let go some of the titan molecules. I think that's a really interesting area of study for people that are interested in muscle and something that if somebody found a really good explanation mechanistically, uh, I think that would be an incredible benefit for society. Switching gears a bit now, you're in kinesiology and muscle research is might be what you're best known for. However, your area of research is actually really broad and you're interested in basic science as well as applied research and you do theoretical work. You also have adjunct appointments in engineering, medicine and veterinary medicine. Can you give us a brief overview of some of the research projects that have been done in your lab over the past couple of years? Well, so we talked about muscles, so I'm not going to talk about muscles anymore. <laughs> so, so that's one area is, you know, muscle properties and muscle contraction. And then the other area that I've been interested uh, since about the mid 1990s, so for a you know, good 25 years now as well, is uh, joint injuries and joint diseases with particular emphasis on osteoarthritis. So I've been intrigued by the interaction of muscles and bones and cartilage and ligaments and tendons and how that really affects the joint under certain circumstances. And so we have developed a whole series of different animal models of osteoarthritis And in the, in the mid-1990s, that was a post-traumatic model where we took out menisci or we cut the anti-cruciate ligament in knee joint of rats and mice and cats and a colleague of mine, even in dogs, and worked with those type of models. And then a few years later, probably more in the 2004 or fives, for about six, seven, eight years, we were very interested in looking very specifically at the role of muscle imbalance and muscle weakening. And that's when we started using uh, botulinum toxin type A injections to specifically weaken the quadriceps muscles in animal models, not really knocking the muscles out completely, but usually trying to leave about 20 or 30 percent of the original force. So the animals could still walk and do everything and from the outside they looked absolutely normal but the muscles were weakened or we very specifically weakened one muscle of the quadriceps group to see what the imbalance would do and so we really looked at the association of muscle weakness as an independent risk factor of inducing uh, knee joint osteoarthritis and in the animal models where we looked at it indeed happened so in the animal models at least if you take away muscle strength or by selective injections of botulinum toxin injections into one muscle and not into others and create an instability, then you do accelerate and you do see osteoarthritis development. What are some of the advantages but also challenges that come with getting involved and in driving or you as a professor also supervising many sometimes very different projects at the same time? Well, I think it, it's a really big challenge and it's really interesting how that evolved for me because I always thought of myself as doing muscle research 
in a small group. We, I always saw myself having three or four students, having a little answer grant, and that's, that's how I essentially wanted to live my life until a colleague of mine in 1993 or 1994 saw my animal model where we measured muscle forces in these cats and the electromyographical activity. And he said, that would be a really neat model if you now removed an anti-accruciate ligament in these animals or a meniscus to see how the muscular forces would react and what that would do to the knee joint and measuring the whole internal mechanics directly. And then I, then I thought, yeah, that's kind of a cute idea. It might give me a little bit additional money. And so I applied with two of these ideas separately to the Arthritis Society and to MRC, the Medical Research Council, which is now called the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. And then I'm not sure if I was lucky or unlucky, but I got both grants simultaneously. And then in 1994, whenever I get that, I think it was 1994, all of a sudden my money that I had quadrupled or quintupled from one day to the next. And all of a sudden I had all this work to do. And then I brought in some additional students working on these type of projects. And all of a sudden from having worked for 10 years only exclusively on muscles and the distribution problem, muscle properties, all of a sudden now I became a osteoarthritis researcher sponsored by CIHR and sponsored by the Arthritis Society. And this work had to be done because I had described it in grants. And, you know, sometimes I think what would have happened if for two years or so I would have been unsuccessful, then I probably would have said, okay, let's leave that. And I probably would run a small group exclusively focused on muscles. So it was a little bit by accident and really at the pushing of a colleague of mine that I really should be doing that. So that was not the plan. I never planned to have a big group and supporting lots of students and so on. One specific challenge could be that early in one's career and you're starting your new faculty member, trying to establish yourself in your own field, becoming an expert there, you're setting up your lab. And at the same time, maybe you have to think about branching out and collaborating and expanding your research portfolio. and maybe finding the right time of when to do which and when to focus on which of those things might be very difficult. And you're wondering if you have any advice on that for early career researchers. I always knew that I wanted to start very carefully and very slowly. I had no ambitions of having a big group. I had no ambitions applying for a lot of grants. Uh, I was very early successful in, in a grant that was given to me from a not-for-profit organization. And then in my first year, I was successful with an answer grant. And that was good enough. And then for the first two years of my academic career, I had one master's degree student. And I purposefully did not take on another one because I said, I want to go through with this one person and do it all and make all my mistakes and learn from it. And then when she was done, that's when I brought in a PhD student. And for a long time, that was my only student. And so for the first five years of my career, I had a little answer grant and I had one student at any given time. Uh, so about you know nine years or so into my career in Calgary, I never had more than probably three students, maybe not even three, but it was very small. And so I started out very slowly, very deliberately, You know, I did all the experiments by myself or with my students. So from a place where I was involved with every experiment and every time my students were in the lab, plus doing my own experiments, it all then slowly shifted from having a bigger group. And for a long, long time, I think till about uh, 2007 or eight, I always set aside what I called vacation, two or three times a year, I would say two weeks aside, where I did my own experiments, just me. And I did them for myself, analyzed myself. But then about 2007 or eight, that stopped. So really, I have not done my own experiments anymore in the last 12 or 13 years. And you mentioned writing grants. And that, of course, is one big task in research that aside from doing the research itself, you have to acquire money for it. 
And what do you think is a common mistake that people make, especially maybe early on in their careers when applying for funding and writing grants? My initial grants were more often than not way too ambitious, way too big, and just really not feasible in a three or four or five year time frame. And the feedback that I got back then was exactly that, you know, this is not doable. You can't do that in three years, you know. So I think really being able to motivate a study, clearly identify a nice objective and then setting out the experiment on how you exactly want to do that and how you achieve that goal. I think that took me a little bit a while to figure out that that's how most granting agencies wanted it. Not NSERC. With NSERC, I was very lucky because I had this ambitious plan, like for my other grants, and kind of a generic type of thing. But NSERC likes that. NSERC likes more the generic planning, what you want to do with some sub-projects and so, but not so much in detail. But CIHR and other granting agencies, they, I had to realize, were really much more, okay, that's what you want to do is, that's how you do it. These are the seven steps that you have to go through. That's the experiment. It takes you three years and it costs this much money. They, they were much more precise in that aspect. So I'm eternally thankful to NSERC of Canada that is a little bit more flexible and allows you to be a little bit more conceptual and where your grant doesn't get rejected because your power calculation was off by a percent, you know. So, But I think, I, I think that's maybe a common mistake when I was young and maybe for other people as well, that you, that you tend to be too ambitious and just not realistic. Uh, one common student interest that has come forward is pertaining to funding opportunities that are available in different provinces. And so aside from the National Tri-Council Research Funding, does the province of Alberta offer any funding to faculty to support the research and the development of their lab? The province of Alberta, until a few years ago, was absolutely fabulous because initially when I came, we had the Alberta Heritage Foundation for Medical Research, where you could apply every year, twice a year, fall and spring, you could apply for student scholarship and you could apply for equipment. And if you were an Alberta Heritage Scientist, you could also apply for operating money. And there were about 150 full-time people supported by the Alberta Heritage Foundation for Medical Research in Alberta. And then that changed and was replaced by an organization that, we, that, that was called Alberta Innovates with different branches. And for many, many years, that was also a fabulous organization in the sense of uh, supporting uh, graduate students and supporting postdoctoral fellows. But then this colleague of mine who convinced me to go into osteoarthritis research, who was the director of Alberta Innovates, unfortunately died suddenly, and then they reorganized Alberta Innovates, and it has never been the same. Alberta Innovates is now really good for scientists that work in the area of uh, knowledge translation and people who would like to, who do entrepreneurial work and would like to start independent companies but I'm not interested in starting my own company. In fact, I've always refused, despite multiple offers, I've always refused to work with companies. But now that organization is really good for that, but support for students and trainees has really diminished. It's very small. There is no operating money available anymore in that sense. There is no, for research, there's no equipment money available anymore. So in these past few years for a researcher like me, the whole advantage that we used to have for 30 years of my early career has really melted away, unfortunately. Lastly, you can already look back on a long career and you got to work with researchers like, for example, Jim Hay, that you, who you mentioned before. How has the way biomechanics research is completed changed over the years? What are some of the biggest differences? That's really an interesting question. Because I think in many ways, very little has changed of what's being done, but a lot has changed how it's being done. So, for example, um, we have a big drive now in biomechanics in Calgary and other places as well about wearables. Because wearables allow you to do research 
outside the laboratory in the real environment. However, when I was in Jim Hayes' laboratory 40 years ago, all the research we did was in competition. So we filmed at Olympic Games, we filmed at the Olympic trials for track and field, and also he did a lot of swimming research. We did swimming research with underwater cameras in the pool at competitions, three-dimensional. And so it always, I always have to laugh a little bit when people say, oh, as biomechanists, everything was in the lab and we never really could go outside. I'm going, no, no, you could. It was just a little bit more complicated. And of course, now with the variable technology, you can do that easier. But I want to see the 100 meter runner or the long jumper or the swimmer that's going to put on the variable technology in the Olympic final. And so the variable technology gets you outside, but it doesn't really allow you to actually measure people in competition because if I was a you know a swimmer in the final of the hundred meter free freestyle, I wouldn't I wouldn't put any markers or anything on me, believe me. But the thing is, we you know it's still in the human biomechanics research. It's still you know about human movement analysis in three dimensions. But that has existed ever since I uh, you know was a student and even an undergraduate student, except now you can gather much more data from many more people much faster and analyze it virtually instantaneously. So I think that that is the big difference. I'm one of these people from the old school that when we came home from a track meet and I had to manually digitize a long jumper, you know, I don't know, 500 frames you know, of a long jump took me an hour per long jumper, you know, and now you get it right away. So to me, that, that has changed. So to end the episode, we have five rapid fire questions for you. And for these questions, please try to answer in one sentence or less. Oh, wow. One sentence or less. The first question is, is there a paper or book that has left a special impression on you? It does not have to be biomechanics related. The paper that I'm continuously referring to and reread almost every year for my class and discover a new thing every year is Huxley's 1957 Crossbridge model paper. Question number two, what is your favorite piece of instrumentation used in biomechanics research? It is my single myofibril, single sarcomere measurement device. It's hand built, it's, you know, it's custom built, we built it. That is my favorite piece of equipment. Question number three, for anyone who's interested in learning more about muscle and contractile mechanics after listening, can you pick three books that they should read? Please read Reflections on Muscles in 1980 by Andrew Huxley and First and Last Experiments in Muscle Mechanics, 1978 by A.V. Hill. Okay. Question number four. You may have already answered it already earlier. What is your favorite conference memory? Yeah. That would be Huxley in 1999. And then, you know, to mention another one, there were a couple of conferences where my students were particularly successful. And I guess the one that really sticks out in my mind is when we celebrated at the end of ISB 2013 in Natal, Brazil, where uh, one student won uh, the best presentation on the postdoctoral level and one, one best presentation on the PhD level, and one, one best presentation on PhD level for posters. So we had these three primary prizes. That, that, was, that was a lot of fun. Good celebration. I bet. And question number five is name one biomechanist who you admired as a graduate student or early career faculty member. If I only can mention one, I would have to say Chim Hay. Chim Hay was... Um, a very hard supervisor in the sense that he was somewhat impatient and he expected you to be in the lab all day and into the evenings and made you work really hard. But the thing why I mention him is, is because I didn't know really how research worked. And he had this very logical approach of looking at every problem and he had an absolute integrity 
uh, to the way he did things. And to me, I really learned how to do research from him. And I'm doing research to this day, hopefully a little bit like him. So I really admired him for that. So that concludes our third episode with Dr. Walter Herzog. Dr. Herzog, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me. Pleasure. In our next episode, we look forward to discussing the topic of bone and orthopedic biomechanics with Dr. Hadi Po from Queen's University. Remember, if you have questions for our confirmed guest, please feel free to email them to us so we can integrate them into our interviews. Please send all content to students at csb-scb.com. Mm-hmm.